and welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee. I really appreciate you coming along on this journey with me. I'm a Bible student, and I've enjoyed being able to share what I learn with my audience. In my podcasts, we explore various topics in the Bible with special attention paid to history and geography. And together, we will be able to dig deeper into biblical truths. As with any opportunity to study the Bible, please make sure you start in prayer and pray for discernment. Ask God what he wants you to do with this information and how you can possibly share it with others. Understand that these podcasts are merely appetizers, and I pray that you will, with discernment, decide how this has whet your appetite in order to want to dig deeper, to get more of the meal. The Bible's an awesome book. And if this is your first time really studying it, well, welcome. And if you are a longtime Bible student, then you know how amazing this book is. You know, it was written over a span of 1,500 years by over 40 authors. And it is a book rich with biblical truths that need to be re-examined again and again because it is the living word. And every time you open it, it speaks to you in a different way. I so appreciate you coming on this journey with me. Welcome to my podcast series on Moses and the plagues of Egypt. We're going to be studying the book of Exodus, which is the second book in the Old Testament. It's one of the five books in the Bible written by Moses. Moses is attributed to writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We believe that Moses received this information from God while on Mount Sinai. The person Moses is mentioned 852 times in the Bible. So it's pretty obvious he's an important person both to the ancient Jews as well as the believers in the time of Jesus. Recall it was Moses and Elijah that appeared in a cloud during the transfiguration of Jesus. That was witnessed by Peter, James, and John, and it's recorded in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and also in 2 Peter. It was also Moses who received the Ten Commandments from God on Mount Sinai, although some people think they're called the Ten Suggestions. Perhaps you studied Moses as a child and maybe even made a basket to simulate the baby Moses floating down the Nile. Or perhaps you viewed the epic Cecil B. DeMille movie titled The Ten Commandments. And if so, then you probably picture Moses as Charlton Heston with, with that commanding theatrical voice saying, let my people go. Or maybe you remember Moses as portrayed as a baby carrot called Mo in the VeggieTales episode called Babysitter in Denial. <laughs> or later, Moses is a cucumber in the VeggieTales episode called The Big Exit. Well, suffice it to say, these movies have taken great creative liberties with the 
real-life Egyptian-raised Moses. So over the next three podcasts, I'm going to give you snippets into the real life of Moses that brought him to the point where he stood before Pharaoh saying those famous words, let my people go. Today's podcast, we're going to focus on the young Moses. And then the following two podcasts, we'll examine the 10 plagues and we'll try to understand why would God allow such devastation to occur to livestock, land, and the people of Egypt. Let's take a brief look into the remarkable life of Moses and what brought him to the point that at the age of 80, he will stand before Pharaoh demanding in the name of God to let God's people go. First, it's interesting, we're unsure who was Pharaoh during the birth of Moses. And then again, who was the Pharaoh 80 years later during the Exodus? It doesn't end well for the Pharaoh during the Exodus. So it's actually not surprising that this event is not recorded by Egyptian historians. And to top it off, most Pharaohs during this time period of around 1300 BC, they all considered themselves to be gods. And so there was very little distinction historically made between one Pharaoh and the next. They were just all God. To better understand this time period that this story takes place, it's important to note that scientists believe the pyramids were made between 2700 and 2500 BC. And the Exodus, we believe, occurred about 1200 years later, around 1300 BC. So that's the time period we're going to be focusing on. This time period in Egyptian history from about 1500 to 1000 BC is what they call the New Kingdom period. And it's during this time that Egypt's rulers start to be called pharaohs. And during this time period, the pharaohs are going to establish a period of unprecedented prosperity. And the way that they do this is they secure their borders and strengthen their diplomatic ties with their neighbors. During this time, they will extend Egypt's borders to the largest landmass it will ever be, extending all the way to Northwest Syria, down into the Mansir Desert in Sudan. And this huge land expanse is going to allow them to really cement loyalties and open up access to critical imports like bronze and wood. Now, I have a picture of what this territory looked like during this period of time on my website, studentofthebible.com. We know from historians that massive building projects occurred during this time period, and we'll start to understand this in a moment. A fair question to start with would be, how did the Hebrew people, the Israelites, who were living in Canaan, end up in Egypt? Well, it actually started 430 years earlier. There was a great famine in the land of Canaan, which we know is modern day Israel. 
And so the Hebrew people head to Egypt because in Egypt, there were great stores of food. The massive famine and the admittance of the Semite people, that's also the Hebrew people into Egypt, it's both recorded in our Bible and also it's recorded in Egyptian history. The Egyptian records say that they allowed this group of Semite people from Canaan into their land because of a great famine. Now, the Bible tells us in Genesis, starting around chapter 43, all the way through 50, it tells us the story of Joseph, who is a Hebrew, who ends up having a high position as governor in Egypt, and he's highly favored by Pharaoh. So Joseph asked permission of the Pharaoh for his father and his extended family to be allowed to enter Egypt to get food and shelter because of this great famine. So 70 of his family members travel to Egypt and they go to Eastern Egypt in a land called Goshen. And because of Joseph's position, they're left alone. Uh, basically because they are shepherds, that's actually considered detestable to Egyptians. So for an extended period of time, we are told they were just allowed to kind of do their shepherding thing and they were not bothered by the Egyptians. Now, the Bible tells us that the Hebrews end up being in Egypt for 430 years. And during this time, they grow from this measly group of 70 to some estimates say as large as two or three million people. Sometime after Joseph dies, it seems that this peaceful coexistence of the Hebrews and the Egyptians is somehow challenged. And of course, during 430 years, you do have a lot of turnover in leadership and some of the new leadership, well, they are starting to feel threatened by the Hebrews and they fear an uprising because these are foreigners and they're certainly not committed to the Egyptian lifestyle or even supporting the Egyptians if there's a war. And we get this explanation in Exodus chapter 1 verses 8 through 10 and it explains that there's a Pharaoh who had forgotten Joseph, forgotten why they originally were giving protection to the Hebrews, and he starts to be concerned that the Hebrews are multiplying and even under bondage. And he feels that one day they're going to join the Egyptian enemies and Egypt will be overrun by the Hebrews. Now, remember, God has promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. So it appears that this proliferation of the Hebrews is definitely accelerating in this protected environment in Goshen. So this particular unnamed Pharaoh, in an attempt to retain his power and to keep the children of Israel under control, he's got a plan. And he decides that he is going to constrict the population growth of Israel. To manage the population, he decides I'm going to give them heavy labor. As I mentioned before, extensive amount of construction going on during this time period. So perhaps he thought that this 
labor would create a high mortality rate among the men and you know just sort of the rigor and vigor of life would somehow decrease their life expectancy and maybe even bring about impotency but the bible tells us it didn't work and even in the midst of pharaoh's plan to thwart the growth of god's people the bible tells us god continues to bless his people in accordance to this promise he made to abraham and they keep on multiplying. So what does Pharaoh do next? Well, this is so fascinating. He calls in Hebrew midwives, and he says that they are to take the children that are males who are born and slay them. And think about this, really up until recent history, all children everywhere were brought into the world using a midwife. There was no man in sight. And as you read this story and you look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, it says, the midwives feared God. And they didn't do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but instead they saved the male children. Exodus 1.20 says, so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. These midwives, think about this, they risked everything to save the Hebrew boys. And so not only did they continue to assist in these births, but they also go back and they lie to Pharaoh. According to the Bible, and I think this is so creative, of course this was God-inspired, they say, well, you know, Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they're vigorous and they give birth before we even get there. So they somehow managed to insult the Egyptian wives, give high fives to the Hebrew wives, and explain why there's no death of the male children. Now in response, Pharaoh, <laughs> he now commands all his people saying, every Hebrew son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Look how far the God of Egypt has to go to further his desires. First, he becomes dependent upon midwives to carry out his plan. What's crazy about this is that here you have the king, the pharaoh, the God, and he calls women into his court, midwives to help him carry out his plan. And the Bible actually names these midwives, Shipra and Pua. And I find it interesting that no reigning monarch of Egypt is ever named anywhere in the entire narrative of the Exodus. But the midwives are named. The great and powerful of this world who do not serve the one true God, their names will be forgotten. But the names of the righteous and the humble, their names will live forever. The name Exodus, well, it means deliverance. And this story truly is about deliverance. Deliverance out of bondage, deliverance into salvation as God's people. Moses' life, as we study it over these next three podcasts, you'll see it's also a story of deliverance. God is going to take Moses through 
an incredibly circuitous route for sure. And you may ask yourself, why would God do that? Why, God, take him through this crazy maze? Why not just take him to the exit, the emergency exit, straight away so he can get these people out and get it over with? Why does God sometimes take us through a maze? Wouldn't an escape be better? Well, Exodus is not just a story about deliverance of a people. The book of Exodus is a story about the development of a person. Quick fixes, easy solution, easy spiritual results don't make developed, mature people. For Moses, yes, that takes a circuitous route. And sometimes for us, it does as well. One of the great themes of the story of Exodus is, whom will you serve, God or Pharaoh? Whom will you fear, God or Pharaoh? Who is sovereign, God or Pharaoh? And yet another very important spiritual principle in Exodus is, when you give something to God, God always gives it back to you in abundance. Luke in the New Testament, chapter 6, verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So looking at these midwives who... By the way, the Bible does not explicitly say we're Hebrew. And Josephus, I've talked about him before. He's a Jewish historian. He lived during the time of Jesus. He actually thinks they may have been Egyptian midwives because you would think Hebrew midwives wouldn't do this to their own people and therefore Pharaoh wouldn't even waste his time telling them to do that. Regardless, we do know from the Bible that whether they were Hebrew or Egyptian, they were faithful to God and God rewarded them. Pharaoh, on the other hand, well, he thinks his plans are not going to be thwarted by a bunch of women. And then when his plan fails, he now has to go to his own people and beg and say, look, this is what you're going to have to do, my Egyptian people. You need to take every son, every male that is born to the Israelites, and you have to drown them. All the people of Egypt are to engage in the extermination of Israelite males. Pharaoh is calling on this mass murder to be accomplished by drowning. But in doing this, spoiler alert, he has written and sealed his own fate because God is sovereign. As Pharaoh has ordered all the males of Israel to be drowned in the waters of the Nile, the entire army of Egypt will be drowned in the waters of the Red Sea. And in the very next passage, the Savior of Israel, Moses, rather than being drowned in the waters of the Nile, will be saved by Pharaoh's own daughter. There is so much irony in the book of Exodus. Now, can you imagine Moses' mother? The Bible tells us her name was Jochebed. She's 
somehow managed to keep the baby Moses for about three months, according to the Bible. But now she's afraid he's going to be discovered. And so in faith, she pushes that baby down the Nile. She is giving her son to God. Exodus chapter 2, starting at verse 5, it explains what happens next. So it says, Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it, and she saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Now, at this point, we don't really know how she knew. Maybe it was a difference in skin color. We don't know. But anyway, she was able to identify this is a Hebrew baby. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Now, the Bible tells us that Moses' older sister Miriam was watching as her baby brother was floating down the Nile. So imagine her excitement, but also fear when she sees Pharaoh's daughter pick up her baby brother. But she bravely approaches the princess, and then the Bible continues. The princess says, yes, go. So the girl went and got the baby's mother, which we know is also her mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. Did you get that? Moses' mom gets to nurse her own son and will get paid to do it. Now, nursing back then implied you kept the child for about four years. Bible continues. So the woman Yochebed took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Moses' mother gave her child to God. And how painful that must have been, but God gave her child back and he even gave her wages to look after him. Wow. The Bible so often reminds us that we should not be afraid of giving things to God. You recall the story of Abraham where he gave up Isaac. He was ready to plunge the dagger into his son's chest. And what did God do? Well, he stopped him. And because he was willing to give up Isaac, God gave Isaac back to Abraham. And then he gave Abraham the promise that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. Now, here we have Moses and his ascendancy to the Egyptian royal family. We don't know a lot about these first 40 years of his life in the palace, but we do know this much. As soon as he came into that home as a little baby, he basically became the grandson of Pharaoh. When he was old enough, it seems logical that he was educated in what they would call a college in Egypt. And we learn a little bit more about the young Moses in Stephen, the martyr's testimony. 
in the New Testament in the book of Acts in chapter 7. Because before Stephen is martyred, he goes through this beautiful speech about Jewish history and he reminds the Jewish people of all that God has done for them and how God led his people. And so in verse 22, he starts to talk about Moses. And he says, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. So Stephen tells us that Moses was a statesman, and then he tells us he was a soldier. And he said he was mighty in words and deeds. So here we have Moses. He's a scholar. He's a prince. He's apparently an eloquent statesman and a courageous, valiant soldier. Josephus, the Jewish historian, he fills in a little bit more of the backstory. He says that while Moses was still a young man, the Ethiopians invade Egypt and the routed army of the Egyptians was threatened and destroyed and the Ethiopians are about to enter the city of Memphis. So in a panic, Josephus wrote that the Egyptian leaders consult the oracles of Egypt and on the oracle's recommendation, they send Moses, and he's entrusted with the command of the royal troops. And he immediately takes the field, surprises, and defeats the enemy, captures their cities, and then returns to Egypt laden with the spoils of victory. Well, that makes a great story. So, for the first 40 years of Moses' life, he really lived the royal good life. And it and, and you would think, wow, he has made it. Moses is living the life. But as we read further, it's actually not the case. It's not to be. Because somewhere buried deep in Moses' soul and in his heart, he knows his true identity. Acts chapter 7, verse 23, Stephen continues, and he says, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. Well, it appears that Moses heard the cry of the slaves groaning in the brick fields under the lash of the whip, and he heard it. And you can probably imagine that there was a period of time where he goes through this agonizing mental wrestling between royal statehood and who he knows he really is deep in his heart as a Hebrew. Can you imagine the courage it would have taken for this man and, and what it cost him to go to his adopted mother, Pharaoh's daughter, and break the news to her that all he has been raised for, all he has been groomed for, it's not his destiny. Now, interestingly, Josephus gives us more background on this Pharaoh, and he says that Pharaoh had no children apart from his daughter, and that his daughter had no children apart from the adopted Moses. And so, unlike the Cecil B. DeMille movie, there's no other son. There's no sibling rivalry. The real story is that Moses entered that throne room talk to his adopted mother and think about this. Moses has nothing to gain through this decision and he had everything in Egypt and he's 
deciding to descend from the steps of the loftiest throne in the world, the number one superpower at the time. And he's letting it all go. And he's making this decision when it's not looking so great for Israel. There's slaves burdened with hard labor and Pharaoh is trying to exterminate them. Moses is going to go from the highest heights and the riches of splendor to the lowest depravity of humanity. Imagine it. He's giving up a palace for a mud hut, giving up the finest food for the coarsest bread, traveling from respect and honor to hatred and contempt, treasures to poverty, and a life of hardship. Yet he bows his head beneath it because it was God's will and he felt in his heart it was his calling. Now, how do we know this? The Hall of Faith we've talked about before in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Oh, wow. So at this point, Moses seems pretty darn perfect, doesn't he? Moses renounces Egypt. He doesn't fear Pharaoh, renounces the pleasures of this world, follows God by faith. But here's where the story becomes super real. What Moses had begun in faith he tries to accomplish in the flesh. He tries to do in the flesh what God had only promised in the spirit. Well, what do I mean? Well, Stephen continues in Acts chapter 7, 24 and 25. He tells us that Moses messes up. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. It was in his heart and it was put in his heart by God that he was to be God's servant. But what was put in his heart through the promises of God and the word of God, Moses tried to accomplish through the flesh of his own doing. And it didn't work, did it? The Bible reminds us we must do God's will in God's way. It's not just about knowing his will. It's not even about doing his will. It's more than that. It's doing God's will in God's way. That's the hard part, isn't it? We are so impatient. We feel that, okay, I know what God wants us to do, and so we're just going to plow ahead, not waiting to do it his way. 
Remember, the Bible tells us that God's ways are not man's ways. Isaiah, Old Testament, chapter 55, verses 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, as a result, Moses is going to spend the next 40 years in exile because he killed someone. He's going to live in Midian as a shepherd, waiting on God's perfect timing. We have just covered so many Bible truths. As I said, one of the great themes of Exodus is, whom will you serve, God or Pharaoh? Pharaoh for us represents the world. Whom will you fear, God or Pharaoh? God or public opinion, popular opinion, not wanting to offend someone. Who is sovereign, God or Pharaoh? God's way or my way? But another spiritual principle is that when you give something to God, God always gives you back in abundance. We're going to see how, yes, Moses gave up some earthly riches and pleasures. But, and he doesn't know this yet, he is going to be blessed beyond measure. He's going to get to lead God's people. And he's going to get to be in the very presence of God. You know, in a small way, I think about what we've had to give up these last few months. And some of us have done it rather begrudgingly. The cost has been great for some who have lost their jobs or even their lives. Have you been able to give this trustingly to God? Have you been able to see the abundance in the midst of the suffering? Maybe you've been able to spend more time with family members, or maybe you've spent more time on the phone or sending emails or text messages with family or friend. Maybe you've had more time to study the Bible or listen to podcasts or to just be still and rest on God. But if you haven't been able to see the blessing, ask God to help you. You know, God orchestrated Moses' early life in order to prepare him for amazing things. God is also preparing each of us. Are you ready? Thank you for listening to studentofthebible.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Buck and Bear Productions. Now, they're both rescue dogs, but they actually, I don't think, know that they're dogs, so maybe you shouldn't tell them. They have been my loyal companions over the course of these productions, although they tend to sleep during my podcasts. At some point, I'm going to get them more involved since I'm giving them credit. Right now, look for their candid shots on my website and have a great day.